Just a quick note to say that if this episode ever sounds a bit technically dodgy, for example, like it's perhaps been recorded remotely during lockdown, well, it has been. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Comics Books. I'm Lucy Dancer and for many years I've worked as a producer alongside a number of excellent comedians. I'm also a book obsessive who's always asking friends and strangers alike what they're reading. So, I thought I'd bring my two passions together and find out what do funny people read. Today, my guest is an excellent comedian who I've had the pleasure of working alongside on Stand Up and Slam. She is an award-winning stand-up comedian. She's host of the Comedy of the Week podcast on Radio 4, and you will have seen her on Live at the Apollo and Have I Got News for You. It is Sindhu V. Hello, Sindhu. Hello, Lucy. Hello. How are you? I am. I'm great, man. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a lot, which is, you know, um, good for this podcast. That's very uh, helpful. That's very helpful. But uh, you know what? Look, it's a bad situation with the whole corona thing and the lockdown. Mm. Are you finding it difficult? No, because see, I had the full Monte Corona on the from the 18th of March to the 2nd of April, like full, full. Oh, wow. So I was, I to say I was out of it is is very true. And I there was like three days in the middle with the breathing. They were like, should she go to the hospital? Should she not? So, oh, God. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, the lockdown's only been a few weeks, of which all of which I've been recovering. So I'm one of those annoying people who's like, hey, guys, what's going on? Because I've just got back on my feet. Everyone else. How are you finding the whole sort of being productive thing? Like, are you being productive or are you taking an actual break? I'm not being necessarily productive in comedy, but I, I'm not a, I've never really been committed to cooking big family meals mm. because I've never had to or because my husband can manage or whatever. And now I cook every day and I cook out of, I cook from a place that's very much, um, it's a part of me that I set aside because it came as, part of a bigger package basically I was raised to have an arranged marriage so to be a good cook was very much part of that package Mm. and I saw my mother do it and I saw a lot of my cousins do it and I thought this is all about women being in the kitchen so fuck this and so I think I had a real and I had a real barrier about it then I went on to lead a life where it would have been difficult to fit in cooking anyway but now I cook from a place of you know of great freedom because I have been able to author my own life very differently than um, you know, if I'd had an arranged marriage. So you never entered into the arranged marriage? No, I had to meet boys. And somehow mm. the, the first few I met when I was in India, which was the time when it would have, when I really had no idea because I'd never had a boyfriend. So I didn't really know what I was looking for. If those had been a yes, then I would be married. And I was 18, 19, 20. Then I got a scholarship. I came to England to study. And once you leave home, your mind expands in all kinds of ways. And I started, I mean, and then I got a boyfriend because that was my big thing of coming abroad was, I need to have sex. Hello. (laughs) Then, then you got into comedy. So how did all that, I mean, how did that happen? I was reading an email that I had received from a woman I knew from from my fashion business times. And she was doing some charity stuff. She was doing stand-up for charity. Literally the least fucking funny woman I've met in my life, this woman. (laughs) And then I read her email, and then it was Funny Women UK, and then I clicked on that. And they had a workshop that evening in Leicester Square. And my husband was traveling. My parents were visiting. I had three small children. I fucking just stood up and left. I just went. Isn't that amazing that you had that absolute longing that you're like, oh, I've got to to get up and go or I, I might not do it. 
And I did. And then I went to this workshop and it was, I don't know, 10 women, who all of whom needed therapy, and me included, just sitting in a circle. I was like, oh, what's going on here? And then um, Karen Rosie and Lynn Parker, who run it, came to me mm. after and said, oh, you should join our awards. And I was like, no, thank you. I don't know what's happening here. Bye. Um, but they were very persistent. And then I decided one day, I was getting more and more angry, actually, with myself for not having anything to do. I, I hadn't cottoned on that this was the thing I would do. So this is what's really interesting to me. So you found this massive extrovert side of you, and obviously you've always had that to a degree. But then you told me that you were and had always been a big reader. Mm. So how, do, how is, is that at odds for you? Is it an escape? Is it, does it go hand in hand? No, well, I think, I don't, I mean, to me, it's not a, they're not mutually exclusive in the sense that I, when I was young and we lived in India, there was one TV channel and the TV, and at 6.30, there was a TV show on farming. As a child, you were like, what the fuck is this? Also, I come from a family of readers. My parents are big readers in I went to a convent. The nuns were on your case about reading, read, 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 read. And they would say things like, well, you're a very badly read child. And it was like a huge insult. <laughs> and what was the first thing you remember ever reading yourself or having read to you? No, no, no. We don't, my, no, one, no one in my family read to me. That's a very Western thing. Oh, oh you just read to yourself. Okay. So what was the first thing you I'll read? Tell you, can I just tell you this and then I'll tell you that. So when... Yeah. So here the big, and I don't even read to my kids. I find it so boring. I'm like, you can just fucking read. What's the problem? <laughs> anyway, so, um, but I know it's a big thing and I, whatever. So when we had, when, when I had my last one, my last baby, she was, she's much younger than the others. My mother was always here because I'd started comedy and I needed someone to be with the kids because I didn't want to just have babysitters because sometimes the babysitters don't come. And I didn't ever want to say to a, to a gig, oh, I can't come because I have a kid. I was like, no, sort your shit out. Sort my shit out. So anyway. So mommy used to come and stay. And then one day mommy came to me and she said, and one day I think the baby was very young. She was like three or four. And she was like, oh, I want to read a story. And I was like, oh, I can't read a story. And my mother said, why not? I will read you a story. No problem. And so then the next morning, my mother said to me at breakfast, she said, it's okay that I read stories to your kids, but what are stupid stories you have given the child to read? And I said, what do you mean? Well, I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she's reading the story of one witch who is a failure. Who is this Vinny witch? who's a failure witch. It was Winnie the witch, who obviously is like, and my mother was like, she's a failure. And, 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 she, and, 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 and her head is also crooked. She can't fly. She's useless witch. I was like, mm, okay, it's not like, it's not literal. Like it's for a kid. So she said, if tomorrow child wants to become a witch, what a bad example. She could be top class bitch. I'm a witch, <laughs> not bitch. And I was like, I don't think that's how. So I was like, you know what? Don't read her story. She said, no, no, I must. So she changed the stories as she was reading them. And then the baby was like, I'm very scared of Winnie. I don't want to. Because my mom made her like a real witch. <laughs> At least she was a top quality witch. I was like, this is so complicated, mommy. Just leave it. Just leave it. Well, um, so, it was your, so I'm guessing your first book was not Winnie the Witch. No, my first book was the Ladybird Illustrated that I remember reading and rereading it, Cinderella. It's always good to start with pictures as well. I must have been very young because I remember I didn't own the book. It was owned by a friend of mine. But my parents had these friends and um, they had a son, Monit Singh. Monit. And Monit always got what he wanted. 
and his mom would buy him just um, these sort of, in those days, the Ladybird editions of the fairy tales came out periodically and she would buy them for him and he didn't, he drew in them, which I found to be appalling. So you, Ladybird's obviously a thing because when I asked you for books that meant a lot to you during your life, you chose another Ladybird, which is the Ladybird Well-Loved Tales Little Mermaid. I think it's because in those days, it was the most tragic thing I'd ever heard in my life. But it's, actually what, what happened is... Tragic? That, is it the old one? Well, that's the thing is I read this one, the Ladybird one, and I remember the images, but then I mentioned it and I think my father got me the Hans Christian Andersen version in like small, it was like, oh, here's the original book. And I read it and it was like, her, she had knives every time she was trying to walk. And I was, I was never, I was devastated. I've never recovered for God's sake. Never. And I broke out completely. Yeah. 23 years after I read that, yeah. I went to Denmark and saw the little mermaid in the harbor with my husband, with my fiance, who's now my husband. And I wept and I said to her that I understand. And my husband was like, are you ha on drugs? Why are you, what's happening? And then I cried and cried and told him about the story. And he kind of, I mean, he was like, whatever, there's some story. Like, it wasn't she a mermaid who wanted to be a girl? I was like, are you shitting me? <laughs> she gave everything up and she went against her family. And I'll tell you something. There's something about going against your family. She had to make a success of it because she'd gone against her father and it was shameful. I mean, what was she reduced to when she came back? And still she had to go back. And I was happy that she just became part of the foam of the sea. We grew up with much softer versions that were quite Disney-fied. And then we read these and we think, oh, okay, no, these are terrifying tales of caution. Yeah, I, but I'm older than you. So I got the terrifying ones first. <laughs> and then the Disney ones, I was like, although Disney Beauty and the Beast, I cried. Oh, it's amazing. It's wonderful. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's probably one of their slightly grittier ones. Oh, I don't know, actually. No, I think it's a lanky. But like, compared to, to Little Mermaid, you know. Oh, Little Mermaid's a joke. I will not even watch that on Disney. Like, screw that. <laughs> well, let's talk then for much happier times about Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables. You see, my mother had gone abroad and I was, I was young. I was 11 or 12 and she'd gone abroad to study. And... Someone over there must have given her a book, and um, it was called Anne of Green Gables. And my mother came back and she gave it to me. She said, "Someone has given you this. One of her friends or whatever." I used to get into a lot of trouble at that stage in the convent and with my parents for talking too much. I used to talk too much, and I was always had something to say and talk too much, talk too much. And it was so I was I was regularly shamed into not talking. Mm -hmm. In many, in, you know, it sort of it was kind of a Victorian way with the nuns, especially. And Anne of Green Gables, this book, I opened it. First of all, this Anne, she talks all the time. The page after page is just dialogue. And it's interesting and fun. And at the end of the book, you can see why, like, see why it matters. So up until then, I had only read books of children who were my age, who were either interesting to each other because they were fucking solving mysteries like that famous five those idiots <laughs> and I, I call them those idiots because first of all they were only interesting to each other and they never really had to deal with grown-ups so i was like this is bullshit 
what kind, you know, this doesn't make, I had to deal with grown ups my whole life. The I had to, of them. Yeah, they, they avoided all the grown ups. Yeah, but I didn't have any insight into how that's possible because I, lev- I, I lived a very, very tightly controlled life. Mm. I couldn't go off all day with tomatoes and boiled eggs and go and do, what, the, what is that? <laughs> you know, I just couldn't understand, you know, where were, who were these kids who had all this access to great, to weird food, but also just food? And they could be gone all day. And there was no one ever talked about, there was no adult looking at them and being critical. That's always been the most exciting thing, particularly when I was younger for me. Any book where someone said or did something that wasn't explained or talked about in the rest of life was just so satisfying and exciting for me that I was being spoken to. Yeah, I guess that's the thing that it was. Like, I, I guess with Anne of Green Gables, it was like, I felt like Anne, except I didn't know where Prince Edward Island was and I didn't have red hair or freckles. But spiritually, I was like Anne because she was a child who was talkative and had ideas. But Mm -hmm. Anne could do things I wouldn't allow myself to, but I would want to do them. What kind of things? Like hit someone on the head with a book or... Oh. Yeah, she... Because the boy's being an idiot in class. Um, You know, or Anne... See... Anne could talk that much and that much and that much. And she got into trouble, but she could do it. I couldn't because I already knew the rules in my in my situation, which was you couldn't talk yeah. so much. So it was fun. It was like Anne was the version of me that if I lived somewhere else and people didn't, you didn't get spanked for doing the wrong thing. Cindy, when you sent me over your list of books, I was very excited because you had some uber English books, uh, some of which I had not read. And the one that really got me and I thought, I'm going to read this, was The Code of the Worcesters. Okay, okay, but did you laugh? Oh my God, I laughed so much. It took me a, a, a little bit to get into, but then I would say within within a page or two, uh, oh my God. I, was, I was laughing. It was very funny, very silly. I was reading like a quite a hefty tome at the time and I yeah. stopped for a little little whistle break and it was I was I loved it and I can see it's why you got so that. good it's so different and so aggressively British and yeah. yeah so funny all the little shorthands I love how he just he just suddenly will be I, I love how he says something like he'll say sarcastic tone and then after that he'll just say st rather than exactly very funny. That's so good. Funny. And the dialogue and the characters are just phenomenal. And I mean, P.G. Woodhouse was the author that was read and, and, and revered by my father's generation. My father's born in 1933. Mm-hmm. And that generation of uh, highly educated Indians who had access to those books and they were sort of that that was a generation that was working with the Brits as they left yeah. India. So they, they had quite British affectations. And I used to go to my parents' friends' houses and they would have pink gin at 11 a.m. and all this kind of things like high. And it was all upper class stuff because that's who the people that were in India from the British government were all quite fancy. And it was all, they were all toffs at that point, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. So all and so my father and his three friends used to meet. They would like come over for dinner with their wives or whatever, and they only spoke in PG Woodhouse. They never broke character. 
he was not a serious person. He was very funny, but it was my mother who was a storyteller and very funny. But my father, he didn't have much time for frivolity. Yeah. So I picked up my first one and I never have looked, I've read everything. And Why is the Code of the Whispers your favorite? Yeah, for the following reason. I think uh, Bertie and Jeeves are by far the most entertaining characters that P.G. Woodhouse has. And the particular, the particular, um, uh, the anarchy of the plot is very, very, Wodehousean in this book, but also very neat. Yeah. And um, you are a judge, are you not? On the prize? Oh, yes, I am, which is, of course, why I said yes when I found out the, the, the prize. The prize is the Bollinger P.G. Wodehouse Comedy Fiction Prize. Yes, and this you is my, get a pig. My right? third year. Yes, and so if the winner gets a pig named after them. Last year it was Nina Stibbs. Um, the year before, we didn't give a prize and everyone went bananas because, you know, they were like, how can you do this and this and that and the other. But, you know, sometimes the judges, and because it has to be um, unanimous. But this is a she prize for comic writing Comedy, in the same sort yeah. of vein. Well, yeah, it, so our big thing is, and we don't really talk a lot about it, but I think, you know, I think all of the judges are off the mind that it should be fun, like ha-ha fun. Yeah. Not like interesting, which, as we all know, in stand-up is also an, an issue. Right. In okay. that way, and it is true that P.G. Wodehouse's books are the sort of benchmark, although it's difficult. Yeah, because those are very funny in a way that you mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. often you don't mm-hmm. often get. I have consistently laughed out loud with my husband, sort of going, "What? Thank what you. now?" Yes, exactly. So thank you, Cindy, because you got me into those. Right, there you go. I hope you read them many. I hope you read many, many more. So the next um, books you've chosen, I don't really know very much about. So I'm interested to know a bit more. You chose A House for Mr. Biswas. House for Mr. Biswas. Yes. So I, my, my best friend um, from the time I've been 15 is a English major. Mm-hmm. And she, was, she's, she now lives in Mauritius. She's half Indian, half Mauritian. Um, Ambika, if you're listening to this, hi. I think she said something to me like, you know, you Philistine, read a proper book here, or something like that, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it wasn't necessarily like, this is a great book. She was like, you idiot, read this. So, because I read everything, and, oh, yes, and V.S. Naipaul has a very complicated relationship with people of his generation who are Indian, because he sort of left and turned around and shat on India in a lot of ways. And, you know, fair enough, those were his opinions. Yeah. Um, but he didn't really leave. I mean, he wasn't from India, India, but he, you know, he he was of Indian race or origin or whatever. And in the 40s and 50s and 60s, Indians were so, my parents' generation, they had got rid of the British. They were full of domestic pride, national pride. Of course. So any author or any word about India that was not completely positive was met with, I would say, an irrational level of disdain and disgrace. And, you know, ah. So I had heard about V.S. Naipaul in the sense that some grown-up would bring it up and my father and other grown-ups would say, ha, he's a bloody communist. And then the conversation would stop and go, okay. Or that man, he's a bloody bastard. Then it would stop. So, and they would use all the by the way use conflict, completely contradictory things. Oh, he's, he's a communist. Then say, oh, he's an American capitalist. It's like, 
which <laughs> but there was just he was just like a he was a he was a character he was a person that raised um the temperature in the room basically so when my friend was like read this or she said she was reading it i thought oh i must have been 17 and it was quite a rebellious time for me and the way i rebelled was by reading an author my father didn't like the sound of hmm. but i wouldn't read it in front of him because i thought why bother? So I remember it was very hot. It must have been the summer. I re- distinctly remember sitting outside in the veranda, reading this book, sweating. It was so hot. But I read this book in August. That's very clear in my mind because of the rains and the heat. And I was so drawn into this book because I felt sad for Mr. Biswas. Hmm. His life was tragic. He tried. And, you know, I think a lot of it for me was he was from the moment he was born, like he made a lot of poor decisions. Yeah. But from the moment he was born, he sort of was considered not okay. Okay. Uh, he was born under the wrong, sort of under the wrong star in a wrong way. And it's just, just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And he's also dominated by a family, which he wants to get away from. And he feels rootless and alienated. Okay. And I think as a teenager, those are not unusual things to empathize with. Yeah. I think it was a sense of missing home, even though I was home. I think it really spoke to me in terms of what it is. You know, if you don't know who you are, then there's a certain sadness. But you don't know that you don't know who you are. And Mr. Biswas and the Trinidad Tobago people, you know, some of the stuff in the Tamil household, the way it works. I'm a Tamil, but I'm like an Indian Tamil. So I think for me, yeah, there was, there was, there, there was so much of sadness and loss in this book. And it really spoke to me. I never went back and read it again. I got so, I was so moved and so upset. But first of all, I went and broke up with my friend for like a day. Um, because why did you, why did she suggest such a terrible book? And she was like, and she told me, you take everything so seriously. And I'm like, well, we're done. <laughs> but she was living in our house. We shared a room, so I don't know how much done we could have been. She lived with us for two years. That's pretty tough. So I was like, we're done. Now go and sit outside my room. She's like, it's my room too. So I went and sat outside. <laughs> I'm a bit of a pushover, but I'm just saying the book really, yeah, it was very, very sad. And I've never had the guts to read it again. But you also, see, you also chose John Irving's a Prayer for Owen Oh, I love that book so much. That's, isn't that also sort of a little heavy? Yeah, it is, but it's Sad. not. It's got so much humor in it. Okay. You, you, well, okay. So let me say, A Prayer for Owen Meany. Owen Meany talks in all caps throughout the book. Okay. That to me is one of those absurd, crazy fucking things I never can forget in a book. He literally <laughs> only talks in all caps. It, that that like like you know you're laughing and I was laughing the whole time I was like what the fuck is going on it's a fat book I was like what the fuck is going on I can't is this what it is to have LSD like what's happening I I just loved it it was so manic manic of course the book is sad and I think for me the thing about the Owen Mini book which I've kind of buried and I don't really like to think about is what it means to have a friend. And what some friends bring us and how we can't repay them. It's nice. It is by knowing 
the friends that I've had and interacting with them and rubbing up against them metaphorically um, and being in their world and having an exchange of ideas and emotions that I have been able to become someone who has positive qualities. And of course, my parents are also there in my family, but just friends because friends are, friends are special. You know, they don't owe you shit when they show up in your life. I think, it, you know, it's not, yours is not the first list. It's, it's popped up on as well. So I think it's obviously a very effective oh, it's a book great to book. quite a few people. It is. It's a great book. I gave it to my daughter who was like, I don't really think it's good. I'm like, your, your brain is not switched on. Switch it on and read the book. <laughs> and so I think, I think she's going to read it. Good. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, by the way, with my kids, if I like a book and they don't read it, I'm like, your brain is not switched on. It's a great book. Read it. So they hate me. I'm reading, uh, I'm, I started reading during the lockdown to my youngest at night, and we're reading Call of the Wild. Oh, God, I remember that from school. Yeah, it's quite traumatic because I had the original version, and the way they go for Buck in the beginning and club him, to, it, the baby's like, oh, my God, this is so hard. And I'm like, shush, 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 shush. It'll be fun. This is life. And also, what's the point always watching YouTube? Hey, guys. So today I'm going to tell you what I think about donuts. Hey, guys. I said, you're becoming stupider by the minute watching that shit. Listen to this. So I was going to ask how you read books. So you say you read them on, a, on an iPad. No, I read them on an iPad if I'm traveling and then if I have to finish the book. But if I'm home, I have the book. But also one of the things is that some of the books that I want if it's like if I felt, if I feel I have to read it and if it's going to be too long or whatever, then I get it. Um, like there's some books that are by Indian authors that are easier to get on my iPad. Yes. So I I either read the physical book or I read an iPad, but I don't have a Kindle. Well, I'm very glad that you're bringing the two together. I I've long been perturbed by the rise of the sort of digital book, but again, right now when it's harder to you know access the library or bookshops, yeah. I have started reading more. Uh, particularly, you know, while we're doing this podcast, when people recommend a book to me, I called my independent bookshop. They've now stopped um, serving people. They were doing delivery, but they've stopped for a bit yeah. during this. Uh, so, yeah, the sort of iPad has taken over for for a little bit I mean, of books I don't already own. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think I'm a pragmatic person. Like I told you, my parents didn't buy us books. We went into bookstores to browse. So to have a book was like, wow. And, you know, we had libraries. I used to check out books. We had libraries. So I had always had a lot of books, but they weren't mine. You didn't when you got a book, you treated it really well. Also in Hinduism, the written word is God. So if a book falls on the floor, I pick it up and I touch my forehead to it. And I sort of make an apology. Your feet can't touch the written word. I didn't hear that. Yes. So that's why our school books, we never keep them on the floor. So with these, with my kids, it's a constant battle because that's absent in the West. There's just no, there's no, the, the written word is not sacred, even though there are sacred books. They're only the book, those particular books. Here in Hinduism, it's the written. So the newspaper on the floor doesn't happen in my house. I will pick it up, put it on a table. So we have that. It's a very big thing. So that's also, I think, why for us books are so, like, the physical book is something you treat very well. I remember being absolutely amazed when I first heard that, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop feeling guilty when I dropped my books on the floor or kicked them. You know, I'd often fall asleep with a book on my bed, 
and be on the no, floor that's in the fine. morning. But in my uh, floor, no. I'm not kicked on the floor overnight, and I would have. But you see that, that's fine if you didn't know it. In Hinduism, in in Hindu dharma, dharma is what it loosely translates into duty, but it's actually the way, the way you do things. Intention is very important. So if your intention, when you go to sleep and the book falls on the floor, your intention, but if you're walking and there's something and you step on it and you don't stop and you could, that's a different intention. So intentionality is a very, it's, it's, it's not a free pass, but it's something to keep in mind. You have made me feel better about that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. But, you know, there is no word for guilt in Hinduism. It doesn't exist. That's true. Mm-mm. But uh, before we finish... Uh, right now, obviously, as we talked about, it is quite hard to buy books. Uh, yes. Physical books, particularly. So I think it is important at the moment. I do know that some bookshops, independent ones, have stayed open and they are delivering books um, right. faster than sort of Amazon can and things like that. So you you did have a local one you wanted to recommend, didn't you? Yes, Primrose Hill Books. on an, It's uh, Regents Park Road in Primrose Hill, NW1. And they give great advice. Um, mm-hmm. They know everything there is to know about books. It's one of those places you can walk in and say, I'm in this mood or that mood. I spent a lot of time there. We lived down the street when I had a new baby. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just nice to go into a bookstore and be like, oh, words, adult things. Oh. But all, and my in-laws who live in Denmark, they had books delivered to them because Primrose Hill Books has such a great selection and they're just wonderful. Perfect. And to end, what are you reading at the moment? At the moment? Oh, I can't tell you because I'm reading one of the... Oh, yeah, I'm you reading, can't. It's a secret. Uh, I'm right. reading the wow. shortlisted books. Having said that, so I'm reading the nonfiction I'm reading is a book called Atomic Habits. Okay, I've heard of that. Well, it's literally, I mean, I'm trying to just, it's like atomic habits, wake up early, it's good for you. And then fine, okay, but how to do it? (laughs) Um, So there's atomic habits, which is fine. And then I am, I'm reading a book on, um, it's called Value of Values. And it's written by a, 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 a sort of a Swami in India, who's my father's guru. He's no longer, um, year he's sort of gone to his he's passed away mm-hmm. um and it's a book i've read many times in my life and i've gone back to read. it's called value of values it's about why do we have values what what purpose what is a value what does that mean why i am reading donna tarts the goldfinch which is my first uh-huh. Tart book and it is wonderful everyone says it's great i haven't read it. Oh, by the way for this i i never read books that are the big hoo-hoo ha-ha i never do i get put off well, it's quite old now. In, in yes, I know, I know, like, I know. It's just come out, but I was recommended it, and I thought now seems like a good time to tackle something new. And I didn't have any preconceptions. I couldn't. I knew the secret history had a lot of chat about it. I didn't know a lot about the goldfinch, but I immediately fell in love, loving it. Okay, so should so, I immediately? Okay, so I have to start reading it. As soon I as highly I'm recommend it. It's oh, okay, fine. Really nicely done, I think. That's what you're reading? That's what I'm reading. That and Going Dark, which is um, uh, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists. It's about this amazing woman who works for an extremist think tank, anti-extremist think tank. And in her spare time, she um, sort of inveigled her way into secret online forums and joined Nazis and stuff. Oh, yes. I've heard about this. Amazing. She's incredible. 
Oh my God. So that is, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Two quite different books, but really good. Oh, she's going into far right networks, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's going into, I think the next chapter is Jihad Brides. But oh I'm, still my on, God. I'm still on Nazis at the moment. So oh, well, okay. Well, really getting through the <laughs> material there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucy. It has been a delight, Cindy. So fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Comics Books. I hope you enjoyed it. In the show notes, you'll be able to find full listings of all the books we mentioned, as well as links to our featured independent bookshop. Have a great week, reading, laughing, and then reading some more.